This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research. Hi, I'm Daniel Trabucchi. In every episode, we have a guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it accessible for everyone. And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. So, welcome to another episode of Talking About Platforms. Today, our guest, Peter C. Evans. Hi, Peter. Hey, thank you for inviting me. And hi to my regular co-host, Daniel. Hey, Daniel. Hi. So let me quickly introduce our guest today. Peter uh, is the managing partner at the Platform Strategy Institute and the lecturer at Caltech and the Tyre School of Engineering at Dartmouth. Prior to that, he was the principal for innovation and enterprise solutions at KPMG and the director for global strategy and analytics at GE. Uh, among other positions, and he has a very long history in platform research and platform practice, and like shaping the whole the whole field in 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 both directions. And that's why why we thought um, Peter is a very very great guest for this um, closing episode to the first season of the Talking About Platforms podcast, which has a slightly different flow than the other episodes. Um, I will talk about that in a minute. But before that, I, as usual, hand over to Daniel to ask our exciting guest the first opening question. At, at this point, uh, I will start sounding like a broken record. But you know, that's our, our icebreaker question. And it's actually a, a, a set of two slightly different questions, but that can end up in a, in a, in a single flow which is, uh, you know, we invited a bunch of people talking about platforms here. And even though we all shared passion for this type of uh, businesses, let's say, we often will, uh, use different definitions. So the first question is, what's a platform to you? And second, how did the platforms enter in your life? So what's your, your story to enter in the world of platforms? Great. Well, great question. Um... You know, I think platforms are really a business model. It's a framework for how you organize successful businesses. And um, when you really dig into the platform space, you find that there's actually a wide range of diversity. And I think that's where some of the challenges are in coming up with the definition. Someone who says, oh, there's a precise definition for a platform, they're going to miss things because platforms can uh, explain marketplaces where you have two sides of a market where you're connecting buyers and sellers. However, also it can be applied to innovation where you have a platform that brings together people with unique ideas. Um, and so the applications of platforms are actually quite diverse. Um, there's a lot of focus on startups and how you build a platform, but you know there are many, many applications to existing companies that have well-established consumer bases And the question is, how do they leverage a platform business model to further grow their business? Um, and so there's lots of interesting ways that uh, existing businesses can also leverage. So they don't have to necessarily fully become a platform, but they can take the principles of platforms and apply them in successful ways. How did I get into platforms? So 
Um, I, uh, after I finished my PhD, I got picked up by General Electric to lead strategy for their energy business. And um, so I was reporting up to this most senior people in the company. Um, so I directly reported to the um, vice chairman. And these guys fly around in corporate jets. Uh, they meet some of the most amazing people in the world. And uh, so I asked, you know, what, what, how can I really help you? And he said, well, tell me something different, something I don't know. And I'm like, wow, that's a bit of a challenge. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I was digging around. I'm constantly digging to find things. And I uh, came across an article by Kusumano um, in a book called Staying Power. And there was a chapter in there around platforms. And as I read it, I was like, wow, this is pretty interesting. And so I really started to dig into this and I began to see more and more. And this was early. This was like 2007, eight. So this is a long time ago. Um, and there was a nascent literature at that time of people writing about platforms. And actually some of the early stuff, like people like Annabelle Gower, who actually co-wrote a book with Mike Cusumano, were actually looking at industrial application where you would have a, for example, an automobile company, they would have a single chassis for a vehicle that would become a manufacturing platform, but the modular components could be changed, like uh, the engine blocks or the drivetrain, things like that could be swapped out. So uh, there was a lot of interest. And then also looking at companies like Intel uh, were building sort of uh, platform approaches to manufacturing of chips and things of that nature. But we began to then see this wave of, of innovation that was happening with the emergence of the iPhone, right? With the app stores and um, then businesses that could connect. Like, you know, there was this explosion of interest in when Airbnb and Uber came along and really showed that uh, there were assets that were being underutilized. And that was really exciting and it was totally transformational, right? Uh, but there's lots of other ways that. Uh, uh, platform business models could emerge like in marketplaces like eBay um, and then in just scheduling like reservations like Yelp and things of that nature and then recommendation engines. And so there was just this explosion of activity that took place. Um, and that's where you got both um, businesses building multi-billion dollar businesses as well as the academic community were like, wow, this is pretty interesting. And so there was an explosion of research in this space um, over the past, oh, I would say 15 years, you went from maybe a handful of people looking at marketplaces and platform business models to literally thousands of scholars now writing articles about various dimensions of platforms. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Thank you so much for, for sharing. Um, and this, this leads pretty well to, to me briefly framing uh, our idea for for this episode and um, Peter we we're super happy to have you on because as the listeners could could now understand uh, like in parallel to to your interesting practical uh, experience in industry and, and and now also in like in a consulting more consulting and teaching role um, you from the get-go were very well familiar with the platform research and and followed this work uh, very well as well so I, you're very much or very good positioned um, in between both worlds, like the practical application and also the, the academic literature. And our goal with the podcast from the beginning was and still is to make platform research accessible to a broader audience. 
And um, I think we're following a, a pretty similar uh, goal here. Uh, you're doing this uh, as well with, with your publications and your work on social media. Um, and so my, my first question to kind of look at what we are doing on a more meta perspective would be how accessible and well distributed is platform research for a more practical audience, in your opinion, and and where do you see gaps? Maybe I know you you did a did a very very interesting research on on the platform authors and and clustering them. Um, would be great if you could could elaborate a bit on that. Sure. Well, um, academia is organized in disciplines. <laughs> there's the economists, and then there's the political scientists, and then there's the sociologists, and um, True to form, those academic disciplines approach the platform space from those lenses. So when you dig into the academic literature, you really have to uh, appreciate where those academics are coming from because they have been trained and they're rewarded for applying those particular academic disciplines to their work. Um, and so there is a small literature, but influential, done by hardcore economists, and they're very much abstracting these ideas and doing proofs um, and things. So for the business people, it's just, uh, oh, interesting, but they would not pay any attention. It's just not uh, accessible for them, and it doesn't solve the actual problems that they're trying to address. Um, I think that the, the work done on compliments is super interesting and very, very valuable. Um, it gets missed because um, a lot of the focus in the popular business uh, press, and here I'm not talking necessarily about the Financial Times or the Wall Street Journal, I'm talking about platforms like Medium, where practitioners who are trying to build they're, they're very, very focused on network effects and the chicken and egg problem because they're really trying to launch a platform. So there's a ton of attention to that space. And then the VCs are quite interested as well. And they want to attract the best potential businesses to their uh, VC ecosystem. So they push out a lot of material on that. Um, but I think from um, the vantage point of companies, there is a gap for particularly incumbents, like how do they think about this space? Um, how do they, and it's, it's a little bit hard because the big in, uh, companies are less accessible. Um, you know, for academics, they need data, they need access. And it's actually quite difficult to get access to, uh, for example, the chief strategy officer of a big company to spend the amount of time with an academic to actually convey the knowledge much easier to get access to a startup guy <laughs> or gal. Uh, they're willing to spend time with them and, uh, you know, do that information. So, um, you know, I guess my, my critique of academia is that, you know, they're rational actors as well, and they tend to go after areas where the data access is easy. And so a lot of the articles that you read are where data is easily accessible yeah. or it's in rich supply or some academic happened to have a graduate student who worked for Uber and therefore had an access to getting a data you know, trove. Although after some of the revelations at uh, Facebook, I think those companies even have clamped down. It's gonna be even more difficult to get access to data than it was uh, a number of years ago. So um, yeah, so I think um, the academics go after areas that 
address, or at least they can frame a problem that's relevant to their discipline is one. And then second, they go after areas where there's data. That does not mean that those are the most interesting questions <laughs> or the most valuable from a practitioner's standpoint. Um, and so those were where I would say the gaps are. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. And um, especially when we're talking about the, the incumbent firms this, that need to like, build the, the capabilities and the understanding and the skills to either like be a like informed user and well-acting user on another platform or build platforms themselves. Um, I think they, 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 lack, they lack these, these um, resources, right? So if, uh, if everything is about like startups um, and, and the big tech, um, where, where do the, the incumbent firms um, get, acquire the, the necessary knowledge? And what I think is very, very interesting, and I think you've, you kind of like coined the term uh, platform professional, um, to like describe how like a role in also or especially incumbent firms could look like uh, or like a, a, a type of role that these kind of companies have to create within their uh, within their uh, workforces to 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 acquire the necessary knowledge and, and be able to to build and run uh, platforms. So my question there would be. What, what is a platform uh, professional and, and, and what, what, what does a platform professional need to do? Well, yeah, that's actually an interesting gap because um, when you look at the academic literature, there's almost no attention to what are the, the talent requirements to actually um, drive a, a great platform strategy. Um, and we know from looking, because there's been some analysis, um, some really interesting uh, visualizations and infographics floating around on what they call the, uh, the PayPal mafia. I don't know if you've seen those, but it's pretty interesting that there were a couple of companies that were early stage and they became training grounds for people who went on and built very, very successful platforms. So Reed Hastings with LinkedIn, uh, Peter Thiel with Palantir and some other ventures. Um, you can go down. There's a, there's a dozen of them that went on to build others. So there was something about being at PayPal that really turned on the lights intellectually for people who have made a career in building businesses. Um, what I think is super interesting is that there are really good platform courses being taught around the world. And not just in the United States and Europe, but also in Asia now. Um, but they're ad hoc. They're just one course in the curriculum. There is nowhere where you can actually go to business school um, and get a degree in platforms, which seems pretty surprising given the fact that now the largest firms in the world are platforms. And you can also build a tremendously interesting and exciting career as a platform professional. So what is a platform professional about somebody who deeply understands the logic of platforms, right? Both from an economic standpoint, what are the underlying economic drivers like transaction costs, the fact that platforms crush transactions, you know, costs of matching, um, network effects, these, uh, the power of complements, um, those those underlying economic principles, once you understand them, then you can see them all over the place and know where to apply them. So just getting a business degree and understanding finance um, 
and whatnot isn't sufficient to really understand the logic of how platforms operate. So you're probably going to miss those opportunities, even though you've done extremely well, you've done great case studies, you've done internships, uh, you know, you've done all these great things in business school, but if you don't have that access to, um, I think is, uh, is a miss. So that's kind of interesting. And so what I find is there are a number of people who just get very passionate about platforms and they basically build their own um, curriculum and set of certifications. So some of the most dynamic people I see out there in, in the platform space, if you go and look at their LinkedIn profile, you'll see that they took certain courses and they've assembled their own certification to show that, yeah, in, both to... Um, you know, learn the, the field and learn what the issue, you know, the, the topics, uh, relevant topics are and the underlying concepts, but also to demonstrate that they've mastered these. And so I would call them definitely platform professionals. Then there are the folks that, <clears throat> you know, have cut their teeth working in platforms. Um, and so in certain pockets, there are there's people with great experience, you know, in San Francisco is a hotbed for platforms. And so there's a, a good market for there, but in places like Europe, where there are not as many incumbent platforms uh, or digital natives, native platforms, um, finding people with that experience base is a lot harder uh, to find. And so uh, I think those companies scramble. And in fact, if you look at a company like Zalando, which is a successful platform out of Germany, and you look at their senior leadership team, all those people come from either top American consulting firms or they come from American platform companies. So Zalando was a first mover in poaching those people, all right, and bringing them to their organization. The question is, is can that strategy be replicated many, many times by other companies in Europe? <laughs> Probably tough to do. So I, you know, one of the things I think that uh, European academic organizations and maybe we can call on the deans, there's a tremendous opportunity to actually create a minor or a major in platform studies. And it would serve both academically, it's a rich area, right? Um, so you would satisfy your academic credentials, but there's also tremendous demand for people with these capabilities and they would have then a certificate to show that they have met those capabilities and also challenge the faculty to uh, put together a curriculum that makes sense and then maybe even have a working groups with companies that would get feedback from them on you know are these really the right skills you know peter what you are saying uh, uh, finds me well, I totally agree with what you are saying. Uh, I always say this when I when I teach uh, uh, I teach platform thinking more than platform management. And what I tend to say to my students is that you know platforms are really challenging some of the basic theories and, and models that we know about management and about business and organization. And and so we we should avoid treating it as a new subject as you said as one single course and actually using it in a broader way because it's challenging some of the things that you studied in the other courses so i've got a question for you if if uh, we have to to draw uh the new measure that you were mentioning in in uh, in 
from management or, or whatever it is. Next to the courses about platforms, what are the essential skills that a platform professional needs to have uh, more than the other professionals, let me say? What are the complementary subjects that you would put there? Great, great question. So um, I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done on this topic, just understanding what are the platform talent requirements out there. I, I've taken a stab with that. Um, I wrote a paper um, called uh, Preparing the Next Generation of Platform Professionals. And the data source I used was looking at job postings. So I looked at 11,000 job postings with the keywords of platform, professional, um, and et cetera. There was a, a group of keywords that we used. <clears throat> and that yielded 11,000 job posts that I then analyzed. And I found that there were six areas where there was a lot of demand for people with platform capabilities. One is, was on platform strategy, right? So understanding the basics of how you understand what is the market potential for the platform, all the things that go into strategy development. The second, and this was the most sought after, was platform product manager. So product managers actually... Um, or a very challenging role. You need to interface with engineering to understand how to build it. Uh, you need to interface with your marketing team to understand what the market potential is. Um, you need to communicate that both to your senior managers as well as to the market. So there's a lot of communication. So the platform product manager role is quite a challenging role but it's essential to driving and making it. They're the, become the key people. They're the PNL leader. But as we know, um, platforms aren't about hiring internal resources and building an internal process. It's about orchestrating, right? And so a lot of the resources that you're going to leverage to make your successful platform, you don't have traditional control over, right? These are like software developers that um, are third parties that you attract to your platform. You can't just hire and fire them. <laughs> and so the same with this whole creator economy space, these artists and influencers and these types of folks, you're not hiring them as a direct employee, you're attracting them to your platform. So there's very different ways and very different from traditional ways that um, leadership are taught. So that opens up some really interesting questions about what, be, what distinguishes a platform leader from a traditional leadership role. Um, others are ecosystem managers. So these are the people that interface between the organization and the external third-party complements uh, that create value for your platform. The other are data architecture. So you need data analysts. I mean, platforms typically, uh, the ones that are successful are data-rich, and uh, they should have data-driven decision-making. And so, um, but you don't want to just hire data scientists. You want somebody who can architect the entire data system that your platform is enabling. And that is a very sophisticated understanding. And, and just having somebody take, um, you know, big data 101 in school is not going to lead you to be able to take on the responsibilities of running the data architecture for a platform that is doing millions of transactions 
right? And in some cases, the very biggest platforms do billions of transactions. So the architecture for that is you know, huge. So, um, and then the other is because regulations now are becoming a bigger issue, right? Um, understanding the regulatory landscape is becoming important and there are unique issues associated with the regulations that um, platforms confront. And so being smart about that. Um, and so uh, you can't just hire anybody. You need somebody with really uh, that compliance, trust. And in fact, there was a really interesting job posting by Airbnb. It was called Platform Defense. Wow. I mean, that was the title of the job. So think about that. You know, it's, I thought of it as kind of the golden goose issue where after you've built this platform, and you create a tremendous value, you need to work hard to protect it, right? Otherwise, because these platforms are you know, hard to build, but they can be taken down pretty quickly. We've seen these reputational issues and trust issues really take a hit to platforms. So the smart platforms are out there building teams that focus on platform defense. And that is a combination of both technical issues which are, um, you know, getting the security, uh, preventing hacking, ransomware, you know, all those kinds of cybersecurity issues. But there's this other layer that is much harder to define, but very critical, which is, you know, are you inclusive? Are you building trust with your consumers? And it's not just your direct consumers, also your ecosystem of complements. So you have a dual role of not just everybody says, oh, you have to be customer consent. Um, customer centric, right? Well, for a platform, that's not enough, right? Because you're, you're supposedly matching two sides of a market. So you also have to worry about your supply and that supply side isn't necessarily under your full control. So that becomes super challenging. Um, it's not like having your traditional supply chain network where if that supplier uh, you don't like, you just cut them off, right? <laughs> in this case, that can have repercussions. That's why you see in the tech press, um, in fact, there was another article just this week, when Apple changes its terms and conditions for accessing the uh, App Store, it has huge repercussions. There are millions of, of uh, software developers that build applications for the App Store. And anytime they change policy, and it can have huge repercussions on those ecosystems, right? So when I think of platform architecture and the tools and conditions you need, it's almost impossible to find one person with all of these capabilities. So you really need to assemble teams, but they all, all have to understand the underlying logic of platforms to be successful. You know, it's amazing what, what, what you are saying because it's kind of... Uh... The 2.0 version of many professionals. You can be marketing oriented, but customer centricity needs to be as twice as uh, it used to be in the past. You can you need data architecture, but at a different level. You were talking about regulation. The platform defense example is uh, is, is is truly uh, a flagship example, I would say in this uh, in this landscape. That's that's interesting. So. It was really a pleasure to, to listen to your you know, set of courses that you would put in this, in this master that one day we'll be drawing together. Uh, talking about the future, 
one of the keystone in our in our podcast is the question about the future of platforms. I know you you're working hard on on some specific topics. More broadly, if you want to go there or if you want to to take it in a, in a broader way, wait. What do you see in the, in the, in the future of platforms? Sure. So um, a lot of my professional career in working in companies was in this position of what they call corporate foresight. And so through that, I um, got exposed to a variety of different methodologies, right? There's obviously forecasting, uh, which is what economists do. But forecasting assumes a certain structure, right, of how the uh, markets operate. But when the markets get disrupted, <laughs> forecasting doesn't do very well. So then you need to move into other types of methodologies like scenario planning and things of that nature that allow you to change the system structure. So um, on the platform front, um, I've been looking at a very simple uh, framework, which is basically leveraging what they call the three horizons. Um, you may have heard of horizon one, horizon two, horizon three and putting that in the context of the platform landscape. So horizon one would be near term, like next six months, 12 months. Uh, horizon two would be basically 18 months to three years. And then horizon three would be uh, beyond three years. And so when you have that framework, you begin to see differences. And because platforms can be applied in so many different areas, uh, you really have to kind of decide what is the domain space you want to look at. Um, so there's just tremendously interesting things happening in the media and entertainment space right now with the rise of the creator economy, the costs of production of things like podcasts um, and uh, distributing video. It's just the costs of that have gone down so tremendously that you don't need decentralized organizations anymore to broadcast entertainment uh, and creativity. And so that is a super interesting opportunity. Now, you have to rec recognize, however, that the underpinning of the ability to do this rests with platforms. So everybody talks, you know, oh, the creator economy. Well, the creator economy is rooted in these platforms that enable these things like Twitch, like TikTok. You know, these are all platforms. Um, and so that's really an interesting space. Um, the financial services sector is also being uh, shaped and challenged and uh, evolving as a result of platforms. So that's a really interesting space. A new space that I think is more challenging, but will have increasing implications is around energy uh, and the great energy transition that's underway as we move from a fossil-based system to a more renewables. And underpinning that is the fact that fossil based energy systems are centralized, right? You have these very large utilities, they support a very large um, OEM uh, market. Um, that is breaking down because the new system, the, the system that we're trying to move to is much more decentralized, right? Solar, wind, uh, any kinds of um, organic based energies, all are decentralized. So then there's an avenue, there's an opportunity for platforms to emerge. So electric charging networks are more decentralized, uh, uh, aggregating wind and solar to feed into hydrogen plants have to be decentralized. 
right? So this aggregation capability that energy has is super interesting. Then there's this emerging data layer that has to do with the coordination. So you have a company like Schneider Electric, for example. Um, you know, they're kind of been in the energy space for a long time, but they've recognized in order to provide net zero carbon portfolios of energy to big companies, they can't provide it all themselves. So they've moved to a network ecosystem platform strategy in which they've assembled a group of affiliated you know, companies that belong to their ecosystem. So when then they do get a project in, they can then tap that ecosystem in order to assemble the right components. Um, and so they become a facilitator, they become the platform orchestrator, right? And so there's some really interesting things emerging in that space. So when we look to the future, um, you know, I think that these platform business models just align really well with the deepening of digitization. Um, and um, I, I've kind of likened this to, you know, we have Adam Smith with the, the uh, invisible hand, right? The market orchestrates and you get uh, allocation of resources through these, this magic of the invisible hand. Then we had this guy named Alfred Chandler come along. Uh, who's a Harvard, very famous Harvard business historian. And he wrote a book that won the Pulitzer Prize called The Visible Hand, which was about how large companies were able to achieve size and scale and economies of scale through hiring managers that did a better job of coordinating than the market did. So you get the rise of very large companies like um, U.S. Steel or General Motors, uh, in the United States. And so those, those became flagship companies and very large, but they did that by bringing resources inside the firm and those professional, the, the rise of the professional manager, which Alfred Chandler pointed to um, was what he called the visible hand. It's like, no, it's not Adam Smith. You need these managers that can coordinate more effectively. What's interesting is, is that with the rise of digitization and the internet, um, you're kind of seeing a hybrid model now where what I call the digital hand, um, where it's not completely the Adam Smithian world of uh, you know atomistic <laughs> decision-making. And it's not the Alfred Chandler centralized, big, uh, large multi-divisional corporation, but we're seeing this hybrid with, with platforms at the center where um, platforms understand what the core is, but they're really facilitating this market. And so I think having companies think hard about what the digital hand means for the markets they operate in and using that as a, a, a framework, like I need to design my strategy and my organization to align to the world of the digital hand would help them a lot in thinking about how to organize their strategy and uh, the value proposition that platforms bring. Coming to the end of the of the episode, I'd like to address two, two closing um, questions. And you already mentioned uh, decentralization in, in different uh, industries and examples that you, that you touched briefly. What I'd like to know is you're working a lot on, on, on digitalization uh, and sorry, on decentralization and decentralized platforms, Web3. So what, what feeds your interest in this emerging field? That would be the first question. And the second question would be, Coming back to the platform professional, what is my learning NFT uh, being one of your exciting projects, bringing together 
the platform professional as far as i understand it with uh, your interest in uh, decentralized platforms right well you know the world never cha- it never stays still it's constantly changing and what we're finding is that um you know blockchain technology um came along and bitcoin was was built on blockchain technology and that got people's attention um but there's a lot been done over the last decade in building on the architecture the infrastructure to do a lot more and so we're seeing um a conversation now emerge around a transition from what people are calling web 2 which is this world we've just been talking about which is the rise of platforms um emerging from the first wave of the internet uh, and the connectivity that it created to this new world in which a whole host of new things can emerge uh leveraging blockchain technology and so these protocols are being built that um allow for actors to do transactions in ways that um potentially can be more efficient higher trust uh and with the rise of what they call NFTs or non-fungible tokens they can have a immutable record to demonstrate that that has actually happened and it can be checked and verified and, and all those attributes associated with that that opens up the opportunity to build lots of interesting new things and so for the last year i was um the chief platform officer for a startup in the electronic music space that opened my eyes to all the things that can happen with um nfts um but also broadly with crypto or digital currencies and then um what else is there there's also um kind of the platforms that are emerging in this space um because like the metaverse really need the architecture of a platform in order to do the things that people are talking about in the metaverse. So those are the big three areas that are emerging. You've got the cryptocurrencies, you've got the NFTs and the NFT platforms and then you have the metaverse. Those things are all converging and tons of investment is going into this space now and building lots of new interesting applications from avatars to new ways of distributing music that um what's pretty exciting about it is is that the customer no longer is just the end recipient of the product they can actually become co-owners in it and co-creators in the product itself and that just is like a you know platform business models are just made for that kind of thing so i think we're not going to see a diminishing of platform business models we're going to see a further explosion of platform business models really the key question i think is are these going to be centralized like we've seen with web2 or they begin to become more decentralized and i think it's an open question because you also have to think about the role of the state you know is the state going to allow for uh shadow currencies to emerge and <laughs> begin to shape uh you know core economic decisions uh and things like that um and so what is the what is the response of governments to this rise are they going to shut it down like china tried to do with bitcoin but you know china has its own digital currency issued by the government that it's pushing so we're going to see some countries uh not say that we're not going to we're just going to abandon this or try to stop it and put a lid on it 
they're going to issue their own alternatives, right? Um, and there's going to be some interesting competitive implications ar around that. So super interesting uh, and exciting space. And it opened my eyes to some innovations that could happen that are very relevant to education. So just briefly, when um, you think about training workers and your employees to, to ensure that they're um, skilled to what is needed for the delivery of, of whatever that company is focused on doing, it's a big investment. In fact, globally, the estimates are the training and development is about a uh, $350 billion industry. But it's all about the front end of learning, right? It's it's making sure that people learn the right thing and then you um, evaluate them and then issue a certificate. What happens afterwards is kind of an abyss. <laughs> um, people get these static certificates, but you don't know if they continued with their education or did they forget it? And in fact, there's a, um, uh, a well-known uh, sociologist who studied memory uh, he's from Germany, he's named Ebbinghaus, um, and it was this research was done. His first paper was published in 1885. So, uh, and he was interested in memory. And he found that when he studied his own memory, he was forgetting things really quickly. Like in six weeks, 70 to 90% of what he learned was forgotten. Um, and so there's this thing called the forgetting curve. And it's a relentless issue that companies have to confront right, is the fact that you pour a lot of this effort into training people, but people naturally, just the way that humans are, we forget. So what's interesting about NFTs is that they can be deployed in a dynamic way to encourage people to continue to learn. So rather than issuing somebody a static NFT, you can issue them a dynamic NFT. And that NFT can respond to what they do post-training. So, for example, if somebody doesn't keep up, that NFT will automatically degrade, right? But if you do some learning actions, you can sustain, or some people actually get inspired and they really want to get into this topic and really learn. You can actually show uh, an improvement over what they actually learned. So uh, we're developing a technology that's um, using leveraging blockchain technology, which is uh, the foundation for these uh, non-fungible tokens, to be able to institute a program in which instead of issuing a static certificate, you can off issue a dynamic NFT. And the idea is, is how do we can get people to uh, encourage them to continue to learn and refresh their memory um, and capture data so that you know who in that cohort is actually uh, continuing to learn and who isn't. And it isn't to punish them necessarily, it's to find out why, you know, what, what would encourage you to do uh, more in that space. And that can be very valuable for companies who have, you know, investing heavily in training. And we know we're moving in, we're in the knowledge economy. So value is created through people's knowledge. So um, the area that I'm spending time on right now is not the coming up the learning curve because a lot of people focus on that. It's this other issue of how do we address the forgetting curve and are there new ways of, of tackling that? And I think there's some really exciting applications. And so this year at the MIT Platform Strategy Summit, 
we're going to issue dynamic NFTs to all of the conference participants. So um, what will happen is, you know, we bring together some of the top thinkers, practitioners around platforms. It's it's exciting. I've been doing it for 10 years. Um, the thing is, is in six months, you know, I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that sort of this dynamic NFT will be a way to capture and sustain people's uh, engagement. So it's an engagement tool as well. And if you maintain your uh, NFT at the highest level, you'll get a 30% discount on the following years. So we want to create a little bit of a monetary incentive as well uh, in this. So I'm pretty excited about the opportunities to leverage kind of these new emerging Web3 technologies into the education space. And it would be super cool if more universities or any university in Europe would offer a specific degree on platform um, management. And we can issue dynamic NFTs for those folks and create a really strong community that I think would help Europe um, become more competitive and uh, you know address this uh, gap that exists between what European uh, companies have been doing in the platform space. We want to see that uh, convergence happen, and I think maybe this combination of applying uh, new new approaches and then getting the academic community in Europe around training the next generation of platform professionals for Europe would be a great challenge and uh, with a lot of potential rewards. Very, very exciting. And I think Daniel is already thinking about how he can be the one designing lead, the, lead the charge on that. <laughs> the platform management master's program. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I thought about it. Now I have to make it real. Now that now, now that you, you would be a first. Either. You would be a first, <laughs> you know? So I'm I'm all behind it. Really good. Yeah, Peter, uh, it feels like my uh, virtual learning NFT got a big upgrade by, by talking to you just now. Um, and we'll definitely link uh, the, the summit and, and the learning NFT in, in the show notes so that people can, can learn more about it. And besides that, uh, last question, what would be the best way to like further follow your work or reach out if people want to learn more? Sure. So I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, so you can follow me there. I, I post on uh, all things platforms. Um, uh, recently, a lot on NFTs. So my, uh, my handle there is uh, it's P Evans underscore C. Um, and then uh, please link in with me on LinkedIn. I'm active on LinkedIn as well. Um, and as you mentioned, I um, have just finished filming a course um, at Caltech. And so that will be available. It's a nine part series, kind of distilling all the things I've learned about platforms in the last 10 years. And I think it's it's uh, very relevant. Plus I have business background. I've spent years working for companies. And so I bring a slightly different lens to uh, understanding the platform landscape than the, the uh, pure academics do. Be great, we'll link that as well. Um, and yeah, so I can only say thank you so much for your time, Peter. It was uh, really great, great talking to you. Um, and I'm, I'm very much looking forward to keeping the the conversation going and and looking into your your course and the learning NFT and everything that's coming. Thank you so much for for, for coming on the podcast. Sure thing. Thank, thank you, Peter. It's been a pleasure.
Thank you very much. And so at this point, I think we can say see you for the next season. Right, yes. Philip? <laughs> Sounds good. I'd be more than happy to come back. I'm sure I'll be working on some new things uh, then. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work, you can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out the coming episodes. If you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed, visit talkingaboutplatforms.com. There you can find the show notes and get in touch with us. Until next time, when we're again talking about platforms.